All right. Our scripture reader this morning is Tori. Tori, good morning. How are you? Good. We're thankful you're going to read God's word for us. And remember, uh, when when we end with it, we she will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we will respond, thanks be to God. So Tori, get us started here. Verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you and remain on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not, sorry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all the honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down there. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, all the words of Joseph, he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, it, Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go see him before I die. This is the word of God. Um, God. Sorry. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're we're thankful that we're not left here on earth without instructions and without a way of 
knowing who you are. You gave us your word to reveal you to us. So, Father, help us to see your face in your word this morning. Help us not just to learn about Joseph, but to see Jesus in Joseph. So illumine our hearts right now, open our eyes, open our minds, so we may receive what you have to say to us. And we ask this for the glory of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Back in 1987, a little baby fell down a dry well. Anybody remember who this baby's name was? Baby Jessica, Jessica McClure. And they didn't know how to get her out. And they thought that she would die of dehydration while she was down there. It took a long time to get her out. Someone came up with the great plan to drill a a tube or a hole basically alongside of it going down parallel and then drill across because they were afraid if they widened the hole above her, it would crush her and the, the well would collapse. But they, they brought her out. They rescued her. And this reminds us of Joseph. He was in a well and he was rescued out of it. Now he in turn will rescue his brothers, their children, their father. And God's going to use all this to, uh, to show his hand in history. That God indeed is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And that's what this short story tells us. And we're going to divide this chapter into four spots. Joseph, first of all, reveals not only himself, but he reveals God's plan. Joseph sends his brothers back to their father. Pharaoh gives his approval. And then finally, we'll see that um, Jacob hears the good news. And that's the most important part of this. So Joseph, all that he's been through here, he knows what's going on, okay? He's known that this is his brothers, but his brothers don't know that it's him. This is 22 years, 22 years of all this. And imagine what he's gone through. Think about it. He was a slave when he was, he went from being his dad's favorite to being a slave, being brutally treated by his brothers. They wanted to kill him first, but Judah and his selfishness said, no, why kill him? We can make some money off of him. And uh, he goes into slavery, but he works his way up. He becomes master over Potiphar's household, but then he gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He goes to prison. He's in a dungeon. Do you realize at any time Joseph could say, man, why does God let this happen to me? I haven't done anything wrong. He could have given up. He didn't. He chose not to. He trusted in the goodness of God. He trusted that God had a plan. And, he's, and you'll see that he reveals this. So he works his way up through the prison, basically becomes the assistant warden, and then interprets dreams. Those interpretation of dreams for Pharaoh now put him in charge of the whole kingdom. He even says that he's more like a father to Pharaoh. Because remember, anybody remember how old King Tut was? 14. And we don't know how old this Pharaoh was, but it was not uncommon for Pharaohs to be young. And here Joseph is in his late 30s. He probably really is like a father to this Pharaoh if he was a young Pharaoh. But it says he could not control himself. This is the third meeting with his brothers where he's playing the tough guy. He's talking rough to them and he's trying to test them. He's given them three tests and they've passed all three. He wanted to see if his brothers had truly changed and they have, especially Judah as we saw last week. By the way, if you didn't get to hear last week's message, I strongly recommend you go back. In fact, anything in our Genesis series, it's all on the website or on our podcast or on YouTube. And it'd be really good just to review all of Genesis so you can put all the pieces of the puzzle together. But it's interesting that Joseph could not control himself, but this is not a bad thing. One of the fruit of the Spirit is temperance or self-control. But this is a good emotion that's welling up inside him. He's been holding back this emotion to love on his brothers, even though his brothers have hated him. He's full of the love of God, and and, and he he can't fight back the tears any longer. Let's park here for just a moment. Let's talk about men and emotions. This is not one of my favorite subjects, okay? But I think it's important. I think Joseph not being able to fight back the tears, weeping, kissing his brothers, all these things are very healthy and very good. And one of the things that we human beings are really bad at is balance. We go from one extreme to the other. If you were raised by a World War II dad, you were told, hey, boys don't cry, toughen up, put those tears away, I'll give you something to cry about. You've heard that, right? And then we go to the other extreme where you need to act like a woman and just pour out all your emotions about everything and make every decision based on your feelings and all this crazy stuff. And, and we live in a generation right now that everything is, well, I just feel. 
I feel like I'm a woman, or I feel like I'm this, or I feel like that. And it's feelings, feelings, feelings. And it's like, come on, can we please strike a balance in the middle? We're not supposed to be robots who never cry, but we are. God has created men to be able to control our emotions so that we can do what we have to do. That's why men do better in combat than women, you know, and that's a good thing. Women do better with their emotions than men because you've seen how men are with little kids. They, you know, they cut their knee open. That's oh, fine. Just pour some bath water on it and go on, go play. And mommy's like, oh, here, honey, let that mommy kiss it, you know. And so if, if men were in charge of toddlers, they would be like all dysfunctional and, and traumatized. You know, and so if women were in charge of toddlers only, they'd be spoiled and they would be all about their feelings. God gave us fathers and mothers to balance each other out. And so we need to strike a balance on this subject right here. One of the a very, very old resource, but still a reliable one is men are from Mars, women are from Venus, <laughs> and how we speak literally two different languages. And so men, we, we process our emotions differently. If something bad happened at work, you know what the last thing we want to do is? Talk about it. We don't want to talk about it. We, we want to go into the garage or go mow the backyard or do something, play basketball or whatever. Younger generation plays video games. And just let our subconscious mind kind of process it. We deal with it and okay, and we're good. But women will say, well, honey, talk about it. It'll make you feel better. No, that's for you. Women talk about it to feel better. And what men do wrong in that situation is they, oh, you have this problem. Let me solve it. No, no, she is solving it by talking to you. You, she just need to listen. And so men cannot expect women to act like men, and women shouldn't expect men to act like women. We process our emotions differently, but men, we do need to process our emotions. We can't stuff them all the time, but we, the best thing you can do is talk to God about it. Talk to God, go into the Word, seek these things, but it's not bad. Our kids need to see us cry. That's good for them. Our kids need to let them know how we feel. These things are important, but it's all in balance. And I'm glad that Joseph is doing this, that it shows that he really has a tender heart. Many people, after 22 years of what he's been through, would be hardened. They would not even be able to shed a tear. Think about the options Joseph had. Hey, you'd put me in slavery for all these years? It's your turn. Put all these guys in slavery. And then after 10 years of that, then put them in the dungeon. And then let's talk. He could have done all that. He could have been spiteful, full of revenge, or he could have went the other route, just say, well, I'm not going to get revenge on him, but I just want nothing to do with him. I, I'm just going to draw a line here, and you know, I'm not going to do anything with it. He goes above and beyond, and he does what Jesus says to love his enemies. And this is what he does. His brothers were his enemies. And, and so Joseph's having this emotional breakdown in front of all of them, and he's fighting back. And he said, I want everybody to just go out. And by everybody, he means all of his Egyptian servants, his assistants, his bodyguards, everybody. I'm sure the Egyptians are like, you want us to leave you alone with these guys, these strangers? These guys who you thought were spies? You sure about this, Joseph? I mean, we could walk out and they could just gang tackle you and, just, and kill you. And he's like, no, let them, we need you to go out. And it's here that Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Man, can you imagine being in their shoes? They, this is the last person on earth they thought they would see. Joseph has done a really good job of disguising himself. All the Egyptian garb, the rough talk, everything, all his actions. The last person they probably thought this would be was their brother. And yet here is the revealing. And he wept aloud, so much so that the Egyptians heard it. His servants, he set out. I'm sure they're close by the door and they're listening. But he's weeping aloud. And... We were, we were, the Bible kind of suggests that his house was attached to Pharaoh's house. And he wept so loud that in the next building over, in that palace, they're hearing this crying gone, this weeping, this wailing. He's weeping aloud. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. I'm sure they are just stunned. I'm sure they're picking up their jaws off the floor. They're just totally taken back. And then the language here, is my father still alive? In Hebrew, there's no question marks. Many translators have translated this with a question mark to help us. But is he really asking? Some people suggest, no, he's saying, I'm Joseph and dad is alive. Because the brothers, what did they say? If we keep making this trip back and forth, dad's going to die. And I think Joseph knows that his dad is alive because not in not just one dream, but two, 
Who also bows down? Their dad, right? So Joseph knows that God's dreams that he gave him are coming true, and dad's going to bow down before me, so I know dad's alive. I don't think he's really asking here. I think, again, some translations, because there's no question marks in Hebrew or Greek, they put that in there to try to help us, but I think it's really a statement. I'm Joseph, and I'm thankful dad is alive, but his brothers could not answer him. They couldn't reply to him, but they were dismayed. They were totally troubled, and they were totally shaken. Have you ever been in a situation where you were so disturbed, you were literally shaking? I'm sure these guys were that way, and they're not dismayed in his presence. They're dismayed at his presence. They're like, I don't know what you're saying. This is my brother. And just, can you imagine all the wave of emotions? First of all, guilt. We're the ones, we had the idea of selling him into slavery. We're the ones who lied to dad and said he was dead. We're the ones who've done all this. And then, and maybe part of us missed him, especially Benjamin. Benjamin was 11 years old when his big brother was taken off. Can you imagine the emotional trauma to this little guy? That his only full brother, because they shared the same mom, was carried away and was told though that he's dead because he was given the same lie that dad was. And so all of these guys, Reuben, Simeon, Issachar, all these guys are having different emotional reactions and they're totally stunned that they cannot believe this is their brother standing before them. So Joseph said to them, come near to me. Now, in that culture, and even in today's culture, you don't stand close to royalty. There's a distance between them. But he's like, no, he came down off his throne. He stepped down. He got on the floor with them. Come here, come close. He gathered in a huddle with them. He says, please. And they came near. He says, I really am your brother. I'm sure he's taking off the garb, wiping off the mascara, or taking off the fake beard that they would wear. He's doing all this. I am your brother. I'm the same guy. I don't think he's trying to guilt trip him here. I'm the, I'm the same guy that you sold into slavery because he immediately tries to get him off the hook by what he says next. He said, now don't be distressed. You know, I'm not saying that to guilt trip you. I'm just saying, hey, it's the same me. The last time you saw me was when you saw my body going down into a dry well. And I'm the same guy that was taken up out of that well. And he, and he said, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves because this could start a quarrel, you know, amongst, well, it was your idea to sell them. Well, I just said, let's come. And back and forth, they could have done. He says, because you sold me here, God sent me before you to preserve life. Here's the key to how Joseph could be so forgiving, how Joseph could not choose to hold a grudge, how Joseph could choose not to get revenge. He sees the big picture. You may have done all this little minutia, but my God's in control. And ultimately, you're the ones that sold me into slavery, but God sent me here. I don't know what situation you're in this morning. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe your finances are in distress. Maybe your job is not going well. But please understand this, that God has you right where he wants you. And the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. It's your choice. Are you going to be softened by this and become better? Or are you going to be hardened by this and become bitter? It really is your choice. Joseph chose. Everybody say chose. Joseph chose not to become bitter. You, can you, as anybody in this room has tough circumstances as Joseph, some of you might come close, maybe, but I don't know that anybody could say you had it as bad as Joseph, and yet he chose not to become bitter, but to say, this is God's doing. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, just like in the same spirit of Job. He said, God sent me here before you, in other words, chronologically, to come before you and, and to go and advance all this, to take care of all this famine, so to be put in place by Pharaoh to make sure that not only does Egypt have enough food, but the whole surrounding world has enough food and to preserve life, including your life. So the famine has been in the land two years. We're two years into a seven-year famine, therefore there's five left, and there will be neither plowing or harvest. This is getting so bad now that it used to be in a famine, there was a shortage of food. Now there's going to be no food. Nothing is going to grow at all. Before it was, it, was, it was growing maybe a little bit, but not enough to feed your family. Now you're not going to get anything out of this. There's not going to be planting. There's not going to be a harvest. If you're going to eat, it's going to come out of my reserves. And he knows that, but maybe everybody else is thinking, maybe next summer will be over. Maybe next summer will be over. God sent me before you to preserve life for a, you, a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. This word remnant is, is really interesting. In fact, it is the, it's the heart of what's going on here. 
Again, you, you're familiar with chiastic structures. It's where God makes basically a sandwich and the way he tells the story. And I know the print is small, but I'll try my best to relay it. The story starts off in verse 1 with him making himself known to his brothers and weeping with his brothers. It ends with him kissing his brothers and weeping with them. So brothers and weeping, brothers and weeping is the way it goes. And then it builds in further into the sandwich. He said, I am Joseph and talks about my father being still alive. Then towards the end of the story, my father and your son Joseph. And as it develops, he says, hey, your brother Joseph and Egypt, and then my father uh, being a father to Pharaoh in Egypt. You see, as it continues there. And then he talks about, you sold me here, but ultimately it wasn't you that sent me here. God was over charge of it. And then God sent me before you to preserve life, to keep alive many survivors. And look what's at the middle of this sandwich here. That God sent me before you to preserve life. And, a, and what's in the middle of the preserving life? A remnant, a remnant. The, middle, the meat of this sandwich is the remnant. So we're going to talk about what a remnant is here for a little bit. This, and I need you to put your thinking caps on this morning because I'm going to go a little bit deep, okay? This will be kind of heavy material, but hang with me. This is super important. God's plan has always been to preserve a remnant of believing Jews for himself. When Cain killed Abel, Satan thought he had destroyed the remnant, but then God brought along who? Seth. And then God preserves the remnant through Noah and his sons. And you see, and then God preserves the remnant through Abraham and Isaac. And God's always trying to keep a group of believing Jews that are preserved for himself so he can bring us the Messiah. Now, it doesn't mean that Gentiles don't get saved along the way. In fact, in the Old Testament, you see the majority of believers are Jews. And then here and there are some Gentiles. And then in the New Testament, it flips. The majority of believers are Gentiles, but there's a few Jews. And there will always be a few Jews until Jesus comes. That's what he, the Bible calls a remnant. Paul talks about that. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Who is his, who's God's people? Israel. Has God rejected Israel? No. There's a lot of pastors today that teach that, that, that God has rejected Israel and a new Israel is the church. That is not true. And Paul, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear here that, that God has a chosen people. It's called Israel. They'll always be his chosen people. Physically, genetically, God also has a chosen people spiritually, and that's all believers, but there's both. Now, it's not one or other. The reason this theology came about that, it's, uh, that, the, that the church is the new Israel is because when Israel was scattered around the world and there was no Israel, there was no Jerusalem for 2,000 years, they're like, well, when the Bible says that God will come back and restore Israel and there will be a new Jerusalem, it must be speaking spiritually speaking because there is no Israel. But then God says, hold up. Wait a minute, 1948, God did exactly what he said he would do over and over again in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. I will bring my people back from all the four corners of the earth and I will restore the nation of Israel. And there we have a literal Israel again. We have a literal Jerusalem again. And so therefore, you don't have to interpret the Bible spiritually. You can interpret it literally. But a lot of them don't want to, in pride, say, okay, we were wrong. So they interpret this wrong. But God has always had a remnant. He says, for I myself am an Israelite. I'm a Jew, is what Paul's saying. I'm a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of who? Benjamin. And who's been the key person in this story, the whole several chapters? Benjamin, because he's the, he's the pawn going back and forth between Joseph and his dad, Jacob. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? And he goes back into the story here. He says, the Lord, they have killed your prophets they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. So when Elijah's having this battle with King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the lady with too much makeup on, he's thinking, I'm the only believer left on planet Earth. And God says, no, you're not. Chillax. He says, but what God's reply to him is what? I have kept for myself 7,000 men. You think you're the only one. I got 7,000 people in a remnant who do believe me and have not bowed their knee to Baal. He says, so... So too, at the present time, so that when the New Testament was written, there still was a remnant chosen by grace. Jews who believe in the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. Schofield says it this way. In the history of Israel, a remnant may be discerned, a spiritual Israel within the nation, national Israel. In Elijah's time, 7,000 had not bowed the knee to Baal. In Isaiah's time, it was a very small remnant is what he calls it in chapter 1, verse 9, for whose sake God still did not destroy the nation. During the captivities, a remnant appears in the Jews, in Ezekiel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, 
Abednego, Esther, Mordecai. These are all part believing Jews, even though they were few in number. At the end of the 70 years of Babylon captivity, it was the remnant which returned under Ezra and Nehemiah. At the advent of our Lord, who was part of the remnant? John the Baptist, Simeon, Anna, and that they looked for redemption in Jerusalem and they were the remnant. During the church age, which is what we're in right now, the remnant is composed of believing Jews, according to Romans chapter 11. But the chief interest in the remnant is prophetic. It's all that God would fulfill his prophecy in the end times. During the great tribulation, a remnant out of Israel will turn to Jesus as the Messiah and will become his witnesses after the removal of, of the church. And of course, Revelation chapter 7 talks about how there'll be 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is literal Israel. And 144,000 believers who are Jewish believers will spread the gospel around the world after the church is taken out. This is why we must interpret the Bible the way it's written and not, the way, and not go to history first and then change the, what the Bible means. And that's exactly what they did. So some of these uh, in the remnant will undergo martyrdom, martyrdom in Revelation chapter 6, and some will be spared to enter into the millennial kingdom when we, where we will rule and reign with Christ. So for thousands of years, most Jews, like the same when it was at Jesus' time, reject Christ as Savior. But there's always been a what? A remnant of believers who still believe in spite of that. Um, there's a great ministry right now called One for Israel. I, I recommend you watch their videos, and it talks about how in Israel right now, People in their 20s and 30s are turning to Christ by the thousands. They're realizing their parents have been telling them, oh, don't read about that Jew, Jesus. You know, he's just a Catholic God or whatever. And like they read the Bible and like, wait a minute, Jesus is a Jew. He was raised by a Jewish mom. He has Jewish ancestry. And, and that God's, he preached, he died for, he preached to God's people. He died for God's people. And this is not rejecting being a Jew. This is accepting what Judaism is all really about. Christianity is not another religion. It's the fulfillment of Judaism. So we go back to Genesis chapter 45. It says, so it was not you ultimately who sent me here, but God. He's not taking them out of the human equation, out of the story. They still have choice. They'll still be held responsible for the choice. But God is sovereign. He's ultimately in control. He has made me a father to Pharaoh. We've had a role reverser here. I'm telling Pharaoh what to do. And Lord of all his house, I'm in control of everything, and I'm ruler of, over all of Egypt. And after having that revealing to his brothers, he sends his brothers back to get his dad. He says, so hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. Again, what does Jacob think has happened to Joseph? That he's dead, that he was killed by a wild animal. He says, God has made him lord over all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. This is fascinating here. God does this all throughout the Old Testament. What's happening here is God takes the word for the garden in Eden, and he mixes up the letters, and it spells Goshen. So it's the same letters mixed up. And so what's going to happen is Jacob's going to come back to what's a type of garden of Eden, a flourishing. And then it says, we'll read next week, that they, became, they, fruit, they were fruitful and multiplied. It's like Adam and Eve all over again in this story. And you shall be near me, and you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks. In other words, you're going to dwell here for a long time. This will be your new home down here in the best part of Egypt. He says, therefore, there I will provide you for their five years of famine to come. There's five more years to come, according to his dream, and he trusts in the revelation from God, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see. It is my mouth that's speaking to you. This is not a dream. It really is me. You see it. Benjamin sees it. And I'm talking to you and telling you exactly what I want you to do. You must tell my father all my honor in Egypt. Now this first couple times I read this, I thought, is, is Joseph bragging? Hey, tell dad how great and successful I am. No, that's not at all. He's thinking about Jacob. Jacob thought his favorite son was dead and gone, died tragically. He needs to know that not only is he alive, but you would be really proud of him. That you, you as a dad didn't fail. You as a dad have something to be proud of in, in your son. I don't think he's bragging at all. I think he's trying to give himself, his dad something to really rejoice in in his old age. So then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. 
Again, they're showing their emotions. They're getting that out in a healthy way, and balanced way. And he kissed all of his brothers, and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. This has to make us go back to when they threw him in the pit. Because what happened? He screamed, he yelled, he pleaded, and they heard him. But guess what? They would not talk with him. They ignored him. They had lunch while their brother was screaming, yelling. They would not talk to him. And now they're talking with him. You might have a strange relationship. You might have a relative or a friend or someone you don't talk to anymore. This was fixed. Yours might be able to fix, be fixed too. God says, as much as is possible and it lies within you, make peace with all men. Now, it says as much as is possible. Some people it's not possible. But as on your end, do all that you can to make things right. Again, I cannot say it enough that Joseph could have just said, hey, kill all these guys. And he would have been totally within his means to do so and justified. But he chooses to go the bigger route. He, he has reason to punish them, but he also has reason to forgive them. And he chooses forgiveness. And Pharaoh hears about all that's going on, and he gives his approval. Now, there's no mention that Joseph has a discussion with Pharaoh. Joseph says, I want you guys to come back and live in the land of Egypt. I'm going to give you the best part. You're all going to survive for your children, grandchildren, and generations. But Pharaoh tells him the same thing. When the report reached Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased him. He became very glad about it. You know, here's this guy who thought he was God. That's what pharaohs do. They think they're God. They think they're one of the gods. But here this guy has evidently had such a relationship with Joseph that what truly is good is being good to him. And he's, he's seeing this, and it pleased him and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your, your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of land. It's like they had the same plan in mind. They didn't even discuss it. And you, Joseph, are commanded to do this. Take wagons. Now, the wagons are important because Egypt had a technology that other nations didn't have. They had a certain number of spokes on the wheel that made them different from other wheels. Most likely, the Canaanites' wheels were flat and boards that were cut into a round circle and pegged through with nails. Here, the, the invention of the spokes, and especially the certain number of spokes, according to archaeology, made them very distinct. When you saw an Egyptian caravan, you knew that there, it was Egyptian because of the wheels, and it was so much farther advanced. These weren't just basic farm wagons. These were nice, resembling chariots in, as far as their technology and their style. So take these wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. So if you were to put this into modern technology, it's like I'm sending the private jet. I mean, you know that you're traveling in style here. And have no concern. Don't worry about anything for your goods, for the best of all, the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph came to them, gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. So he gave them enough food and supplies to get there and back. And to each of all of them, he gave a change of clothes. This also is ironic because when they threw him in the pit, what did they do first? They stripped him of his clothes. They dipped him in blood and they lied to their dad. And he's like, hey, last time you saw me, you left me naked. You took away my clothes. I'm giving you clothes. But these clothes are more than that. The Bible talks about that when you become born again, when you have that conversion experience, when you become a child of God, you are clothed in robes of righteousness. And when we stand before Christ, we will stand in, clothed in His righteousness. It's a picture of being new people. You've changed. You're different now. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. And again, he's honoring his dad because this is his dad's favorite now that he's been out of the picture. So to his father, he says, follow. Ten donkeys loaded with the goods of things of Egypt. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. And this word quarrel, it can be interpreted different ways. It can be actually arguing, but it has to do with being stressed out. Stressed out to the point to where maybe you're arguing amongst yourself. And you can see why. You know, I told you so, as, as uh, uh, Simeon said one time. Or as, as, you know, I told you we should have listened or to arguing. Well, it was your fault, and they could argue along the way. They could also be stressed about the whole thing as well. So that brings us to the third point. So Joseph revealed himself in God's plan. Joseph sent his brothers back. Pharaoh has given his approval. And now Jacob hears the good news about his son. 
So they went up out of Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan and they came to their father, Jacob. Now, remember, what does Jacob's name mean? It means usurper, the one who trips people up, the trickster, probably the best translation in our today. And notice that sometimes Moses, who's writing all this, calls him Jacob by his old name, trickster, but then sometimes he calls him Israel. Just pay attention, make a mental note of that as we proceed through the story. And they told him, Dad, Joseph is still alive. I was like, what? Let me turn my hearing aid up. What did you say? Dad, Joseph is still alive. In fact, not only is he alive, he is the ruler out of all of Egypt, the most powerful empire on the planet. Your son is in charge. The guy we've been talking to who's been selling us food and then turn around and giving us a rebate on all our money, he's the one. And his heart became numb. Have you ever experienced that? You've just had so many ups and downs. Life's been such a roller coaster. You don't know what is up, what is down, what is true, what is false. You've been lied to so many times. You don't know what to think. You're like, I don't even want to think anymore. I just, I, I just don't even know if I can feel anything right now. I used to feel angry, then I feel happy, then I feel sad, then I feel depressed. And, what, and now I don't feel anything because I don't know what's true anymore. And this is where he's at because he, because he did not believe. He did not believe. This was good news. It was true. But because of all his baggage, he's like, I, I don't want to believe it. Have you ever encountered someone like that? Life has been so bad to them, they're just like, you could tell them you just won the lottery. And like, ah, I don't know. And they're just hardened by life. Let me just plead with you this morning. If that's where you're at, give God a chance. Give God a chance to speak to you. And you can say, yeah, I've given up on church. I've given up on the Bible. I don't know how God could let people go through all these hard times. Just give God a chance. Be willing to hear the truth because numbness is a real thing. But we need, if we continue to listen to the truth and we choose to believe, then life will change. But when they told him, watch this, here's, what, here's the pivot point. When they told him all the words of Joseph, they didn't cut anything out. You see, in previous chapters, they left out details because they didn't want to hurt dad's feelings. But now they're telling him everything Joseph said and everything that he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons, like, those have spokes on them. You guys are telling me the truth. And so he hears the truth from Joseph's words. He sees the reality backing up what Joseph says. And then the spirit of their father revived. The spirit of Jacob revived. He went from having a numb heart to having a a heart bursting with life and with hope. The connection between your thinking and your physical heart is amazing. Have you ever heard really bad news and your heart just literally starts pounding or you feel like your heart stops, all those different things? And it shows that God has created us in his image. We are body, soul, and spirit, just like he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And they overlap in an amazing way where just what you think can have a physical impact on your body. Something that's out here as as a concept that you can't see, all of a sudden has effects on your body, which you can see. Watch the connection here. So they went up out of Egypt. And of course, he ends the story with I will, Jacob saying, I will go to Egypt. And then they said, Joseph is, Joseph is still alive. And he says, okay, my jo- son Joseph is still alive. And then his heart becomes numb. But then you see his heart reviving. And what made the difference? When they told him all the words of Joseph, and which he had said to him. Now, let me ask you a question. Who is Joseph a picture of? Jesus. See, hearing the words of Jesus is what makes a difference in our hearts. When they heard the words of Joseph, who was a picture of Jesus, follow this. The words of Jesus cause us pain at first when we realize our sinfulness, but the gospel brings real transformation to our hearts. You see, when Joseph heard the truth, he didn't like it. He didn't know whether they'd believe him. His heart became numb. But when he continued to hear the words of Joseph, that's when the change came about and his heart was transformed. Romans 6.23 says it this way. The wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But the free gift of eternal life is through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the good news. You cannot have someone's heart changed without both. They need to hear the bad news. They didn't hear say, hey, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, there is a hell. And yes, you deserve it. 
And man, that rubs people wrong. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear positive messages all the time. Be the best you you can be and just pop psychology from the pulpit. And they just want to hear anything. That, hey, I just want, I want to leave churches feeling good. You need to feel bad before you can feel good. You need someone to tell you the truth about your sinful situation before you can really appreciate the good news. And, and the, the gospel is that you are more sinful than you want to admit. But you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. And that's, the, that's, what, that's what Jacob's gone through here. He, he hears the news at first, it rubs him wrong. But when he opens his mind to all the words of Joseph, then he changes. And you know that Joseph is a type of Jesus. Watch this through the story. Joseph was despised and rejected by his brothers. Jesus was despised and rejected by his Jewish brothers. And that was prophesied 600 years in advance by Isaiah. Joseph was sent down to Egypt by God to preserve life. Jesus was sent down to earth by God to provide eternal life. Joseph was thought to be dead, but found to be alive and exalted to a throne. Jesus was really actually dead, but found to be alive and exalted to his throne. Joseph later was not recognized by his Jewish brothers. And Jesus is still today not recognized by his Jewish brothers. Joseph revealed himself to his brothers when? In the midst of the seven years of famine. And just like the Bible tells us what's going to happen in our future, is Jesus will reveal himself to Israel in the middle of the seven years of tribulation. Do you see the picture there? This is clearly what Genesis is trying to tell us. And this is what prophecy is going to fulfill in our lifetime, I believe. Joseph tells his brothers to not be troubled, but he's going to give them the best land in Egypt. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, and I go to prepare a place for you. And in my father's house there are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. You see the picture of Jesus in Joseph is remarkable. In Genesis, Joseph suffered for the sins of his brothers. Even though he was innocent and they were guilty, he's the one who suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might preserve their lives. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Do you know this, Jesus? Don't just see Genesis 45 as being about Joseph. Jesus walked his disciples through the Old Testament and said, they all point to me. Jesus is the one who suffered for your sins. It should have been us on that cross. It should have been us who suffered and died, but Jesus took your place. And the Bible says, if you will simply confess with your mouth that he is now the Lord of your life. You give it all to him because he gave all for you. And you believe in your heart that God raised him dead. He died, was buried, and rose again. You will be what? You'll be saved. Have you been saved? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Father, what a beautiful picture in this chapter. And Father, just as Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, I pray that if there's someone here today who does not know you, you would reveal yourself to them that Jesus would show them that he truly is their Savior. And Father, help us to be like Jacob, who after hearing all your words, we're willing to accept it and that our hearts revive because we now know you. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you for Thank you for the amazing grace that changes lives. That takes us from addicts to adopted. That takes us from liars to, to saints. That takes us from unwanted to being children in your family. You take us from being hellbound to a heaven we don't deserve. Thank you for loving us in spite of ourselves, even when we did not love you, when we shook our fist in your face. Thank you for being patient with us and never giving up on us. Help us to live our lives, not for ourselves, but for you, because you gave everything for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you... 
uh, want to know more about trust in Christ. Maybe you're not there yet. You still have questions. There's my cell phone number. Let's talk. You know, I'll buy you a cup of coffee or lunch, and we'll we'll give you the answers you need to be able to put your faith in Christ. Uh, we're going to do question and answer at this time. Chenda, can I ask you to help me with this? And so if you have a question, you can text in right there to that number. You can do it anonymously if you like, or you can raise your hand and uh, and ask it here in person. If you're watching the live stream this morning, you can also text in as well. All right. Good morning, Chenda. How are you? Great. There you go. And you can use that microphone right there. There we go. How it is it that God's plan was still able to happen with so much pain and deceit? If Joseph had sinned or denied God or been disobedient, would God still be able to use him or would he have had to use someone else? That, that's a great question. And, and it's our little human minds can only comprehend so much. But it's interesting that God uses our good choices and our bad choices all to his glory. Romans 8, 28, that God works all things, that's the good and the bad, all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So God can use someone's bad decision to work out for your good, your bad decision for their good, your, someone's good decision for your good. God uses it all. And it, it's like, how is that possible? I, I don't know. <laughs> I know God's like in total control. Um, I've shared this illustration before, but it's worth repeating for those who are new. Um, when I was a little kid, uh, the Cold War was going on. Russia and the United States, we thought literally every day we were going to be bombed by nuclear weapons. And do you remember the old school drill, the civil defense drills? Like they rang the bell and everybody went out to the hallway. You put your hands behind your neck as if that was going to stop nuclear bombs from killing you. And, uh, and you, you got down on the floor and then, then they said all clear and everybody went back. And we were just practicing for the nuclear bombs to drop on us. And, uh, at that time, the United States and Russia did not do anything together. We boycotted each other's Olympics. We didn't want to do anything. We didn't trade, we, all, all that. But there was one thing we did. We battled each other in chess because chess was like Russians' like favorite sport. And so we sent Bobby Fischer over there, who was a young guy who was super genius. And Bobby Fischer would actually just toy with these guys. He could have ended the match in six or seven moves, but he would just mess around and mess around. And even though his opponent had free will to move his pieces wherever he wanted, Bobby Fischer would never lost control of the board. And that's the best way to illustrate that our free choices, God's still in control of the board. He knows what he's doing. And so don't think of plan B. Well, I messed up plan A, now I'm in plan B. You know, I wish I'd stayed married my whole life, but, you know, I, but now I have to settle for this person or whatever. No, no, God works it all together for good. You're still on plan A. You just need to trust him. You just need to trust him that God has allowed all these things to happen. He could have stopped it, okay? But he, he chose to allow what he allows. Some things he does step in on, some he doesn't, but that's where he's in control. And that's where we need to believe what that bumper sticker says. There is a God and you're not him. So just, just yield control. All right. There's a couple more. Please. Was he still his favorite son after being gone for so long, or is Benjamin the fave? Wow, the good question. You'll have to ask him when, he gets, when you get to heaven. Um, I don't know. Um, my gut answer is, since Jacob always struggled with his selfishness, now that his oldest son is the most powerful man on the planet, that's probably the new favorite now, is my guess, okay? <laughs> Who's Benjamin? Benjamin who? Got Joseph. They got Joseph. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered? In Hebrews 2.10. Oh, that's a great question. So, like, people in cults will read that. See, Jesus wasn't perfect, but now he was made perfect. No, the word perfect means complete. In other words, his job was finished through his suffering. Had Jesus just come to earth and healed the blind and, and, uh, and fed the, the, the hungry and raised the dead, his work would not have been made perfect until he suffered on the cross. That's when Jesus could say, it is finished. If he had stopped short of that, it would not have been perfect. He was perfect, but his work was made perfect by him dying on the cross for our sins. That's why I have a big problem with people who say that Jesus went down into hell and suffered, you know, and he paid and he fought off demons in hell and stuff like that. Then what is Jesus saying it is finished for? He's, it is finished. When the Bible says he descended into the deep, he went down there to lead captivity captive. 
all the believers of the Old Testament said, hey, the work is done. Let's go to heaven. And the people on the other side like, hey, take us. It was like, nope. <laughs> Remember, there's a great gulf fix between us and you, and you guys are there. But this side, we're going. And that, he didn't go down into the depths to suffer more. He suffered all he needed to suffer on the cross. And that's why he said, it is finished. Totalistai, which means paid in full. Right, any other questions? Greg, did you want me to read the verse? You sent it as well. Yeah. He also sent the yeah, verse. Please. Hebrews 2.10 from the NIV. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. There you go. That's good. Very well said. All right. Any other questions? All right. Um, okay, cool. Here we go. There's two. Did you want me to read both of them? There's one at 1124 and one you just sent. Okay. Does God allow us to go through a personal wilderness to get our attention? Uh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, Joseph was young and kind of mature when all this happened. And it, and it matured him to the level to where if all this hadn't happened, all this hardship, he would not have been mature enough to be in control of the, of the empire of Egypt. Um, I can honestly say if I hadn't gone through all I'd gone through, my failures, I would not be the pastor I am. Not half of it. I, I, I have a, sorry, <laughs> I have a more tender and understanding heart towards people who struggle because I've struggled. And so if I had just breezed through life, I'd be like, why can't they get their act together? You know, but uh, God does take us through hard times. But what does he, what does he tell us in First Corinthians? Said, so that you can comfort those with the same comfort that you've been comforted with. That's what it's about. You've learned some lessons. Now pass, it on, pass the baton to other people who are suffering the same thing. With the same addiction, right? With the same job struggles, with the same family struggles, the same financial struggles. You're supposed to look to those behind you and say, hey, I've been there, done that. Let's walk through it together. That's that is what church is about. That's the show. All right, let's stand. One more. Oh, no, I'll tell you, let's stand and we'll do the one more okay. at the same time. In the, Get the Bible, blood flow. when Jesus mentioned his right and left hand, what his right and left hand, what does this mean? I, I assume this referring to in Matthew where it says that you don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Okay. So Jesus says when you give, you don't make a big deal of it. Like, hey, look at me, I'm giving. You know, that's why I always laugh at these charities that have like these 10 foot checks and they're holding them up. Like, look how much money we gave. Look at us. We're important. Look how generous we are. You know, don't do that. You don't sound a trumpet. You don't make a big deal of it. You don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is. So it, it's, a, it's hyperbole for like, let it be like an under the table thing. Whenever you can give, give anonymously. It's a good thing. You don't have to sound a trumpet and let everybody know how much you gave. That's what Jesus is talking about. All right. So Patrick, would you dismiss us in prayer, please?